Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire and welcome to Master Leadership. Great leaders ask great questions and this podcast takes you on a journey to master leadership with questions that matter to leaders who matter with your host, Lily Sinabria. Hi, this is Lily and welcome to Master Leadership Through Crisis series, where we will connect with leaders worldwide to gain insights on important questions to help us navigate through rough waters. If you would like to participate as a guest, or if you have a question that you would like to ask a guest, go to masterleadership.org for more information. Today, we are speaking with Derek Kirk. These days, Derek has been investing mostly in the dreams of others. Literally and figuratively, he is a hope dealer. The best part about that is that business is always booming. He's taken more losses in his life than he should have been able to afford. He's been abandoned both personally and professionally, left to fend for himself and do the work that normally takes a village, all on his own. Now he sees he is the village. His challenges began very early in life and continued throughout, but he learned that sometimes a wrong turn actually sets you on the right path. For a myriad of reasons, growing up in an orphanage was the best thing that ever happened to him. He has since gone on to obtain a higher ed degree, climb the corporate ladder at a thriving real estate firm, as well as build, develop, and sell a lucrative business. He loves being an entrepreneur, and establishing a successful company was a great achievement in his life. Yet selling his business opened the door for him to pursue other endeavors, and his mission has never been so clear. Derek wants to help you become your own village. Because many will run to be by your side once you've made it, but few are as eager or available to assist you in getting there. He didn't let that stop him. Don't let it stop you. Welcome, Derek Kirk. How are you? I'm doing just great. I'm doing just fine. <laughs> we're, we're super happy to have you on our podcast. Are you ready to pour into our listeners? I am ready. All right. So Derek, tell us a bit about your path to leadership and what you're doing now. Well, my path to leadership started, I guess, before I knew it was a path to leadership. I come from an unusual background and have an unusual start in life. At six years old, I was taken away from my mother, myself, along with my two sisters, and I have an older brother as well. I never knew my father. The reason they said we were abandoned, so we needed to be taken away and placed in the state's care. And on that day I was taken away, it was no signs telling me that that was going to happen that day. When we woke up for school that morning, my mother kind of get us all up for school and she just tell us have a good day I'll see you guys when you get home and so we all walked to school I had to walk two miles to school just one way 
And so we get to school just a regular day. We have breakfast, just laughing and giggling with friends. And in elementary school, we just have one class. You know, it's just your homeroom teacher that you spend the entire day with. And she teaches multiple subjects. And so I'm sitting in the class laughing with friends. I see my teacher look out in the hallway as she's being called out into the hallway. She goes out into the hallway and this is normal where a teacher gets called out and she just out there briefly, she comes back in. But this time she was out there unusually long. We all noticed that was unusually a long wait than we usually get. And she comes back into the classroom, she's crying. And so that was very unusual for a class to see their teacher crying. So class immediately got still at that point. And she's coming back in, wiping her tears away. And everyone is in drop dead silence. She looks at me. And so we lock eyes and everyone sees she's crying. Now she's looking at me and calling me to the front of the class. So everyone's kind of like, what's going on? She hugs me for a very long time. So the class is just completely silent. Usually in a class of six years old, you know, that's hard to keep a six-year-old class quiet, but they knew something was wrong. And then she whispers in my ear, I'm going to miss you. So at that point, my heart just started racing and I immediately thought what happened to my mom I look out into the hallway to both my sisters standing there crying and I see the vice principal and I see another lady with them with a huge folder in her hand she was unfamiliar and I just keep asking my teacher what's happened to my mom and she's not telling me anything she's escorting me to the hallway while she's crying so I get out into the hallway I ask my sister what happened to mom and they're like we don't know what's going on and so I look over to the vice principal. They're not telling us anything as kids. You're not trusted with the truth. And so we are just kind of left, I guess, to figure things out ourselves. So as we're walking down the hallway to the front door of the elementary school, the lady with the huge folder starts to speak. We clearly didn't acknowledge her. She says, hi, I'm the social worker. I'm here to take you guys away from your home because your parents abandoned you. And so we were shocked for sure, because my older sister, she's kind of the ringleader of the group. We follow her lead. And when the social worker was telling us the reason she's removing us from the home, we were just in disbelief. We were just like, no, 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 you're wrong. You know, our mother would never do anything like that. They were holding my older sister's hand tight. And my sister leans over to us and say, on the count of three, we're going to run home. And so we're like, okay, yeah because this is wrong, what this lady is doing. And we're walking from the elementary school front door. We get to the door, we walk outside of it, all still holding hands. And my sister holding our hands tight. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to have to keep up because she's probably just going to just dart. And my little sister, she got that same feeling like she was ready. We see the car that they're going to take us in. And my sister is holding our hand tight as we get closer and closer to the car. And then my sister gets in the car and we all get in the car. So my sister did not run. She just started crying harder. And then my little sister does the same. They're both in the car crying. I'm still processing what's going on. I'm not crying at all. I'm just still trying to figure out, is this real? What's going on? Where are we going? I'm, I guess, trying to keep it together to be alert why they're uh, bawling their eyes out. I'm staying alert to figure this thing out. So we're driving up the freeway and 
I'm still not feeling any emotion of sadness at this point. I'm just more curious than anything. I'm looking out of the window inside other cars as they go by. And we pull up to this suburb, these huge houses. And then we pull into this driveway with this huge park across the street of it. We walk up to the front door of this house that is pretty big. They had an in-ground pool. We were definitely shocked and overwhelmed. We never seen a house like this. We never left our neighborhood up until that point. So we never knew houses like this exist. We get introduced to the family that lives there and then pretty much told us the rules and how things work in the house. And that was pretty much an eye opener because in our household, we didn't eat breakfast. We didn't have lunch. We didn't have any snacks. We had dinner a few times a week. So we didn't have consistent meals in the household that I grew up in. They didn't care about school at all. When we come home, no one cared about homework. We never did homework. And so when we got to this house, it was so structured. The next day we woke up, our rooms were right next to each other. We'd all sleep in the same room. I would sleep on the floor just so we can stay close to each other in the morning. The foster mother would wake us up and she have already made us breakfast just the way we liked it. Back then I ate cereal without milk in it. So she would just make me a bowl of cereal without any milk with a muffin. And this was just so unusual. So we're thinking like, it's just because it's our first day or, and she says, no, this is how we do it every morning. Everyone comes and I make them the breakfast of their choice. And so we were just like blown away that this is actually nice. So we weren't in school yet. So lunchtime come along, we eat lunch by the pool after lunch and get a snack in between dinner time. And then dinner time comes. It's so formal that we are just in awe that this is real. We only saw this in you know, Disney movies and television shows that families doing this to know that it was actually real. We were just shocked at TV time where everyone watched TV as a family together. And so that was new. And in this household, they discipline the kids when they do wrong. And so that was said up front, like you misbehave, you are disciplined with a spanking. But for me, coming from a home where I was heavily abused, after leaving that situation, I kind of develop a zero tolerance policy for abuse from anyone else. After leaving that home, I kind of guess I was never going to be touched or beaten again by anyone else. But I misbehaved in school. And so I, when I came home, they tried to discipline me and it didn't go well uh, for the foster parents. I kind of blew up on them. And at that point, they didn't want me in the home anymore. And so they called my social worker and got me removed 24 hours later, so which destroyed my sisters and my brother. He was placed in a facility somewhere else. So he was destroyed when he knew that we weren't together anymore. At this point, my social worker picked me up and in the car, she let me know, Derek, you're aging out of the age where parents want to adopt and you're getting taller and taller you know, you're African-American. So here in this country, you aren't going to be in demand for being adopted. This was a new social worker that I never saw. She was honest and I like that about her. And I know a lot of her kids, she said she had issues with because she had to sugarcoat a lot, but I took her honesty, breathtaking. I liked it. And so me and her actually got along because she was brutally honest with how things worked as I was on that journey. So she let me know, we're going to have to take you to an orphanage. And I was like, an orphanage? I only heard of that word in the movie Annie. And I was like, in that movie, it seems like she was okay. You know, they were singing, they were dancing. 
to like the orphanage is similar to a nicer juvenile facility. And I was like, I don't know what juvenile facilities are either. I'm six, almost turning seven at that point. And she says, I, I can't explain it more. It's something you have to see, but this is our only option. And I said, okay. You know, I was at that point really brokenhearted. When I let my sisters down, my sister, I knew she wasn't going to be eating for days. I knew the problem she was going to cause for them because she can't protect me anymore. I'm kind of out on my own. I kind of got to defend myself as the mother of the group. She already didn't have my brother to look after coming into the situation. And so now for the other brother to get taken away, she was just getting hit left and right. And so that left me with some pain heading into the orphanage. And on the journey to the orphanage, so we started driving to the orphanage. We pull up to this huge facility, had to be 20 foot gates or higher. Nuns were walking in unison outside the gate, I guess on their morning walk. And that was kind of weird because I never saw a nun before. I didn't know what a nun was until my social worker was just like, oh, there are the nuns. Immediately, my heart dropped and started beating really fast. As a six-year-old, nuns are frightening. They're extremely frightening because you can't see their feet when they're walking. So it's like they're floating. And then they all got these head coverings, so you can't see their face. And so it's like a scary movie. I'm like, whoa. So I'm like, yeah, just drive past them really fast. And it's nobody at the gate, but the gate opens and we drive through the gate. And on the other side of this gate is what really answered a lot of questions. It was very unknown. I was very nervous coming into this place. I didn't know what to expect. This place was the size of a university campus. So it was massive. It was about 2,000 kids that live in this orphanage. And on this orphanage, it's several dorms that house 30 kids each. Kids from my age, all the way up to the age of 18. And so when you're driving through the facility, there are kids running around everywhere. So in front of your car, everywhere, they have all the equipment a kid could use from playgrounds to basketball court, baseball, soccer, football fields, indoor options as well, indoor soccer. So they really built this place for a kid to develop with a normal childhood. And as we're riding through all the way to where I'm going to be living, you really grasp that really quickly. I'm looking out the window at all the kids. I'm staring at their facial expressions. I'm really looking for detailed signs that this is going to work or it's not going to work. I'm seeing if any kids are crying. All I'm seeing is groups of kids clicked up together, looking after each other. The staff member hovering over the kids, making sure they're okay. You see staff members hugging the kids, laughing with the kids, caring for the kids' injuries. You see a lot of care, and I caught all of that. And the three minutes we were driving down the driveway. And when I pull up to where I was going to be living, the boys were already in groups. They already had their selection of friends. And when I get out of the car, they all run over to me and say, hi, Derek. Like we were waiting for you. And that embrace, that's what actually made me cry. That embrace from those kids coming in in unison waiting for me, that blew my mind. This place had embraced every kid coming in. They wanted them to feel unique. They wanted them to feel wanted. All these kids that live there come from crazy backgrounds and survive some crazy things. And so coming to a place where they're wanted meant everything. So that little thing right there meant a lot to me. They all hugged me and said, welcome, let me show you your room. And they all showed me to my room, all 29 kids and asked me, what do I like? What kind of music? What kind of toys? What kind of this? What kind of this? So you just engulfed in it in this friendship immediately with everyone 
And so you forget about everything on the outside immediately when these kids come around. And that's what started my journey upward. That's the beginning of where my life kind of took a turn was when I saw the upside of this orphanage. This place was the reason I knew I was going to survive at this place. This place definitely saved my life. It had all the resources a kid could need at elementary school, middle school, and high school on campus. We had three square meals a day, including a kitchen full of snacks in each dorm. Pretty much it was freedom for a kid, but we had a lot of heartbreak in that facility as well because you build bonds with these kids and these staff members become your parents and your big brothers and sisters. And when they leave, that destroys you every single time, just the same. That heartbreak comes and it hurts just the same when these staff, it hurts them that they have to leave because they feel like they owe you after they spend so many years looking after you. You can see the pain on their eyes when they have to tell you that they're leaving. Mm -hmm. And so working there, I can only imagine year in and year out, they have to break so many kids' hearts. Even if they transfer to another dorm, the place is so big, you're not going to run into that staff member. Again, even if they just moved two dorms over, that happens every single month. It hurts just the same. The new staff come in, you fall in love with that person. Same with the kids. Because adoption was huge there as well. This is where parents are looking to adopt a kid. They come here and they shop the kids. So while we're out there playing and it's parents and families that are out there, you know, coming up to you, trying to share an experience with, to decide if you're going to be the next kid in their family. That may have happened to me once in that entire journey I was there, but um, I started sprouting up in height pretty quickly. And that kind of ended very quickly for me. So a lot of my friends got adopted. Kids there try not to get adopted. That's the game in the orphanage is that we kind of want to stay with each other and look out for each other, but it's not up to you. These families come over and we'll be sitting there on a bench by ourselves and multiple families will come and sit with us, sparking up conversations and we'll be nasty. That doesn't help at all. They catch on pretty quickly. Right. They'll still adopt you. And you was like, man, we did everything for him not to get adopted. And he still got shipped out of here. That happens a lot, but it's definitely sad to see uh, me being there every year, every week, these families come in, you pretty much know it's not going to be you. You see families look at you, you know, you'll see some families come and talk to you, but you know why they're not getting you and it sucks, but they'll come and spark up conversations just because they may have a plan A for a kid and a plan B for a kid, a type of kid and a plan C for a type of kid. And you may be on that list somewhere. But it's usually my size. I'm not a huge guy, but as a kid, when you're seven or eight years old and you're just almost as tall as the mom, they're not going to take you. You're not cute and cuddly anymore. They don't think they could teach you. They don't think you'll be respectful. And as an African-American man, it plays a part there as well. It wasn't many African-American families coming in there trying to adopt. So I knew exactly what I was facing. So I knew I was going to be there for the long haul, even though they would try to encourage me each and every week. My social worker was the only one who could kind of like tell me, look, you're smart enough to know this isn't happening for you. No matter what the facility says, you have to now start building yourself up, making yourself stronger, teaching yourself skills, because a family isn't going to come and do that for you. She didn't want me to have unrealistic hope. She wanted me to start working on myself and educating myself in things that I'm interested in. 
You want to learn how to play basketball or baseball. You can't wait till a family to adopt you to put you in a pal league or a little league. You have to pick up that bat yourself and play with the kids here. She kind of brought me down to earth at a very young age. And it's not many people like her. She didn't say the same things to her younger kids or the kids she knew, the adopted. But for me, she let me see the writing on the wall. And that kind of guided me a lot, especially when the facility sent me off grounds to middle school now. They said, Derek, you're doing really well here in our school. So we're going to send you off grounds to public school. So you're going to be around unfamiliar kids to now build real life situations, relationships and friendships. And so that was the goal. I went to a local middle school and my social worker like, hey, always keep in mind that you live in an orphanage and you can't go where you want to go. And people are going to definitely treat you different when they learn about your situation. So you definitely always look out for yourself when you're out there. Always make sure you're looking and you're learning as well. Make sure you choose right when you choose your friends because you are still alone, Derek. If you get in any trouble, you don't have any parents that's going to come and bail you out. It's you that have to bail you out. And so she always pulled me to the side to let me know the realness of the situation that I have been put in. Even though the facility did not do that, they want you to go out and have all these experience, but she would reel me back in like, yeah, have those experience, but remember. So that always kept me cautious. And then I wasn't the only one that would go out to this school. There was others from the orphanage. And so I would see them make huge mistakes, get in huge trouble at school, and they couldn't be bailed out. I've watched some examples of it. And so I had a social worker that would keep me cautious and avoid all of these things. And so I had friends, but I could never tell anyone where I lived. My friends want to stay the night, but I can't let them stay the night. I can't go over to their house. They always want to know why. I have to make up some excuse every time because in order to come over to my house, you need to go through a lot of background checks. And in order for me to go over to your house, I have to have Michigan state approval to go over to your house. Uh, so it's not that simple to, to just ask my mom and dad. The facility worked hard in keeping an image for each kid. So every morning I would get dropped off to school by someone African-American. And so the white kids would get someone white to drop them off. Asian kids, same thing. They really worked hard because they knew the bullying a kid would go through if it was the opposite. If someone Asian dropped me off every morning, people would be like, hey, what's going on? So they knew, they looked out for you in that area. And my social worker worked hard to make sure that always stayed in place for me, even if I was running late that morning and I needed to be dropped off late and no one African-American was available. She'd just say, make them go to school later until someone gets there. She really protected my image as well without me knowing how important that was. I didn't want anyone feeling bad for me. I got a dose of that and realized quickly that wasn't for me. My uh, English teacher found out from the office my situation. So she comes in the classroom and she calls me to the front. I was like, hey, Derek, I heard your story and it's very unfortunate. So you no longer have to do this assignment that we're going to do. And so you can just sit there, draw in your book. And so I felt so many mixed feelings going through me as she's telling me I no longer have to do these assignments. And yet I get an A for that assignment. And so I would sit there in class, everyone else working hard, looking at me as if I did something wrong, all because she's now treating me different because she heard my story. And so that I knew I didn't like. If any other teacher found out, I would immediately reject it. I 
told my social worker so she could get in touch with the administration so that teacher could not do that because I knew she was keeping me out of education. The work wasn't hard. And I'm like, ah, if I don't learn this now, I'm sure the next grade here in this school is going to come back to me. And I'm always going to be depending on my story to kind of get me out of work that I don't know how to do. And so I saw the future and how it could really affect me. So I had to find a way to clean it up and make it right. And I ended up getting back on track with these assignments. But I moved through life without telling my story for a very long time because it would benefit me in a way that wouldn't benefit me. And so I always kept it a secret from friends, from teachers, relationships. I wanted everyone to treat me as if I was normal. And so everyone thought I had a mom and dad all the way through middle school. I went on to high school as well. Everyone thought I had a mom and dad every single day. I didn't have any issues. I graduated high school with a decent GPA that got me into a university and then I'm still in the orphanage. And then in the orphanage, you age out at 18. And the state of Michigan is kind of done with you at 18. The orphanage do not prepare you for that life. You being on your own, you kind of just hit 18 and they pull you in an office and say, okay, this is what's going to happen. They give you this folder that has a check in it. And so they kind of just leave you out to your own devices. They get you an apartment, some bus fare. Your first two months rent is paid for. And they give you a check and they kind of tell you, okay, good luck with life. But my social worker let me know all the way leading up to then what was going to happen. So I did have someone there kind of preparing me like, hey, you need to be thinking about how you're going to take care of yourself after, you know, where are you going to work? They have some money but life is going to chew up that money fast. And I still didn't have anyone holding my hand on how to pay bills. I still didn't have anyone teaching me how to apply for a job, how to write a resume, you know, how to cast a check. These things were not taught to me. So the minute I hit the real world, life came at me so fast and I lost the apartment because I spent the money that I thought I didn't know you had to pay bills on time. So I was immediately homeless at 18. Now I got accepted to college. So I'm waiting for college to start and that transition period from high school to college. So in between that time, I was completely homeless. With the money I had, I was just living in motel to motel, waiting for university to start so I can try to get my life back. Those months I was just living in hotel to hotel. Then when I ran out of money, I would just sleep on benches where I think I was hidden off somewhere where nobody could find me. And then I would kind of make my way up towards where the university was. And then I would sleep around until the university would start. Then I would go to orientation. And then I can kind of like really work hard to kind of grab my life back all through college, tutors every single class. I studied psychology and I graduated Western Michigan University. And I didn't want to do psychology, but I didn't want to quit. I was too far in, so I'm like, I got to finish. I knew business was the way I wanted to go, but I didn't know how I was going to do it after I dedicated so much time into psychology and I needed money. So I figured I would just get a job in psychology, save money and navigate into business somehow. But that quite is not what happened. My sister is now an adult. So she now has a house. My brother, he's doing okay now. So as we're older, we kind of bounced and landed on our feet on our own. And so after I graduated, my sister says, hey, come stay with me while you figure things out. 
And that's exactly what I did. So after college, I went to my sister and I stayed with her for a little bit. And I told her psychology is something I needed to finish because I started it. It isn't something I want to do. I want to do business. I don't know to what degree. Um, so I need to get a job. I applied to this real estate market leasing manager position. So I jumped into this real estate world on the property management side and I quickly excelled in it. And so while I'm living with my sister, I'm working in the property management world. They're promoting me because I'm also teaching myself on the side business, how to analyze a market because I want to focus in real estate and be well-versed in business in general. So I'm teaching myself how to read a budget, uh, how to read a profit and loss statement. So I'm teaching myself so many sectors of business while I'm working for this company. And as they're promoting me, it's clear that I'm retaining everything that I'm teaching myself and they're rewarding me for it. And to the point, they think I went to school for business at this point because of how I'm excelling in the company. So they promote me to the property manager. After they promote me to the property manager, they promote me to the regional manager. After they promote me to the regional manager, they promote me to the operation specialist as well. And as I'm climbing the corporate ladder, I'm now making a, a really good salary. So now I'm able to get my own place. And now I'm well-versed in business to where I can start taking leaps of my own. And so I created a foundation. I also started investing into low-income housing to provide housing for people that can't afford it. Started building my own portfolio to the point to where I have a really successful portfolio and foundation as well. And then I started speaking as well. Companies wanting to hear my story more. So companies would fly me out to annual events to hear my story. And that picked up to where I started doing that every year. And so my life started to grow, but not without the effort and the resilience of me. That is kind of how I landed right here on you. Hey, leaders, stay tuned for the rest of the interview following this brief message. If you want to find, claim, develop, and expand your voice in order to land that job, those clients, or that partner, then Master Your Swag podcast is for you. You don't have to have expert credentials to be featured, and you can select from several plans that can perfectly match your needs. Go to MasterYourSwag.com and claim your spot as a guest, and be ready to get noticed. That's MasterYourSwag.com. Derek, I'm sure you've seen me cry as you tell your story. I have to kind of pull myself together because it is such a moving and powerful story. And I wrote some stuff down mm-hmm. about what I observed when you were little. And as you went through this journey, you were incredibly observant. Yeah. And you picked up nuances. And I imagine that those are still things that are part of who you are and has helped you to survive and thrive incredibly empathetic, extremely bright. And you went through a spectrum of emotions. Mm-hmm. Your memory is amazing and your storytelling is captivating. So those are all amazing leadership skills that you've developed since you were little. And, you know, one of the things that I notice is that you appreciate truth, mm-hmm. no matter how hard it is, mm-hmm. and authenticity. You value that. You're very self-aware and very much a visionary. Did did I nail it? You kind of nailed it. (laughs) Yeah, you have to be. I mean, I was kind of born this way. If I saw a younger version of myself, I would tell myself, you're going to be just fine. 
And that kid could be going through a world-class life. He could be really getting drugged through the dirt. But if I can sense those same skills in that kid, he's going to be all right. Those people find a way. You can give them peanuts and they'll still make dollars out of that. You can give them anything and they will be okay. You kind of got to be born with it. You can't do it alone either. I needed someone to tell me the truth. I needed advice. I needed guidance throughout the whole process. Being observant, it's a tale in a way. You're watching expressions and emotions. Those will always tell you the truth. So when you're talking to people and you're reading their body language and their emotions as a kid, it's so easy to read because that's all you have. And in my childhood, adults always lied to me. So all I could go off of is expressions and body language. When someone walks in the room sad, you can see that a mile away. You don't need to speak to them because you've seen sadness. You've seen happiness. You've seen abuse. You've seen when someone's lying and trying to cover up. I've seen that so many times growing up to as a kid, you master those things. When my mother would abuse drugs, I knew when she would abuse drugs, even so she would come in the house and try to put on a face. I was able to tell instantly, okay, this day she drank. She didn't use that day. This day she did both. I can tell you on a spreadsheet exactly the days when, all because of her expression. And that's all I kind of needed to kind of guide me. As a kid, that really helped a lot. You can prevent a lot of things and you can tell a lot of things. You can get out of a lot of situations. You said something, you said you were born with it. Well, we're born to be brilliant, really, to mm -hmm. be extraordinary. But situations can snuff a lot of this out. I also heard through your story, you also had angels in your life kind of guiding you yeah. in the social worker, in those kids that embraced you and that little girl who kind of gave you hope, which leads me to the next question. You describe yourself as a hope dealer. And I love that. Tell us about that. These people, they're giving you hope in a way you'd understand. And that's what I want to be. And I am to some people. They come to you with an issue. They come to you how I was. And I can see that a light at the end of their tunnel when they can't. And so when I'm speaking to these kids, I'm giving them that hope on their level that they'll understand. I go into detail. I've been there. I've been past there. You don't know what's on the other side. You don't know what's next. You have no say in where your life takes you as a kid. You're just going with the flow. Adults pulling you each and every way, putting you in situations that you have to survive. And so you need to have some skills to kind of survive it as you're going through those twists and turns. And those are skills that we need in uncertainty, especially now, yeah. right? So tell us about your organization and where we can connect with you. The Kirk Foundation, DerekKirk.com, that's D-E-R-R-I-C-K-K-I-R-K. Donate. And if you need the resources, there are steps on the website uh, to help you get them. Yeah. Perfect. Tell us about your services. For single mothers, we provide necessities like groceries, assistance on rent, utility payments. And for homeless teens, we buy your first car. We help you find a place, a shelter to live. Uh, if you're a teen that grew up how I did and you're in college, we help you with your books and uh, tutoring services as well. And people can contact you for speaking and coaching as well. Yes, right there on the website as well, uh, DerekKirk.com, top right-hand corner. If you're a human resources organization and you want me to come speak to your kids and your teens or uh, things like that, there's no charge for that. I speak to kids completely free and teens completely free. So if you need those services, uh, let me know. That's amazing. <laughs> I love you. Just because of who you are in this world, you bring hope. 
you've been through a lot of uncertainty. You've mm-hmm. been through a lot of crisis. What quote, advice, or practice has helped you most during crisis? Don't let you beat you. And that quote definitely sticks with me the longest because I end up learning that I was the only one in the way. We have obstacles, but it's you that has to jump over them. So if you're well-equipped, you'll jump over these obstacles easily. And so as I move through life now, it's not many things that frighten me. It's not many things I couldn't handle. They're just road bumps at this point because I'm well-equipped. So that's the game. Don't let you beat you. And that's self-talk that we all need. So I really appreciate that. Now you have a book and a documentary. Is that correct? The documentary is still in production. That's going to be a treat. But that's still at least 2025. We're still trying to get it perfect. And so we're not in no rush to release that. And that will be on Netflix. And so that one is going to be a treat. The book released this 2021. So that's this coming year. And that's called Innocence Loss. That'll be a treat as well. It gives you a look inside my life from start to finish in great detail. So you can kind of put yourself as me growing up in the life so you can see exactly how I twist and turn to get here. Lots of pivots. Yeah. So Derek, as a lifelong learner, what are you learning right now? Right now, I'm still learning things about investing in different things, anything that interests me and investing on a multitude of things that I can get a return on that I use every day, you know, like buying a good car that I can keep for five years and then sell it and get 98% of my money back. You know, taking advantages of things like that in today's time is very critical. So I learn things that pretty much I can educate people on. I'm learning the details of that I teach on the podcast as well. Credit here in America, buying a home here in America. I learn things that will help me and then I teach them or I talk about it on the podcast. And your podcast, tell us about that. It's My Thoughts with Derek Kirk. So wherever you're listening to this, we are there. And so that's what I do. I try to make sense of things, whether it's political, I try to reach the other side by telling the other side story. This is why they support this or they believe this. So now you know why they are the way they are for both sides. I teach credit. I want people to understand why it exists, what you're supposed to use it for. These kind of things, just information that I provide. So that way you never know what I'm going to be talking about on any given episode. It's just (laughs) Fantastic. So we're picking your brain. You're just spewing out all this wonderful knowledge. You touched a little bit on politics, which leads me to this question and where we are in this world, not just politically, but connecting with people. So when you think of leadership today, mm-hmm. what most concerns you and what are you most hopeful about? Definitely to bring people together. This pandemic separated us, creating more divisiveness is just a fuel to a fire. Definitely bringing people together is what this country needs. When that don't happen in a country this size and this diverse, you're just creating trouble. Definitely we need someone who can bring us together and keep us together. So when this country is going through all these twists and turns, we don't turn on each other. What I'm most hopeful about is that leaders in this country only get a handful of years and then a new regime comes in. That's America. So I'm hopeful that things always get better, whichever side you on, you got to capitalize on it, really hone in on it because it's only here for a moment. Fantastic. Now I have a question from a former guest. Bob Titi wants to know, what is the greatest question you have ever been asked? The greatest question I've ever been asked 
was by a, I think it was like a sixth grader when I was speaking. And he said, if you were born white in your situation, where would you be? I was like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> I told him I would be still here talking to you, but I would be much younger. <laughs> and I was like, sit on that, take that with you, think about that. And when you catch it, you'll appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> that was certainly a great question and a great response. It may take us a while to get it. Now, as a listener of this podcast, what is a question that you would like a future leadership guest to respond to? How do you handle the current twists and turns in your life? Great question. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? You can reach me at my website. That's www.derrickkirk.com. That's D-E-R-I-C-K-K-I-R-K. And my thoughts with Derek Kirk is the podcast and you can find it anywhere podcasts are heard. Foundation is on the website as well. If you need resources or you want to donate, you can do it there. Derek, I want to thank you so much for adding value to me and to our listeners. It's been a great conversation. I enjoyed being here. You brighten up my day today as well. Have a great day. Thank you. In closing, here's a quick message. Coaching is the art of influence that underpins leadership in the 21st century. It is the very thing that can get you from being stuck to being extraordinary. So go to masterleadership.org and sign up to get a free coaching session. Until next time, continue to ignite that leader in you.